Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. Today, we're going to learn about the historical accuracy of 2002's Wind Talkers. That's the film directed by John Woo, starring Nicolas Cage and Adam Beach, about the Navajo Code Talkers during World War II. To help us separate fact from fiction, there is perhaps no one better to do that than my guest today, Judith Avila. Judith is a writer and author of Chester Nez's fantastic memoir titled Code Talker, the first and only memoir by one of the original Navajo Code Talkers of World War II. Before we get Judith on the line, though, let's set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, and that means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, all the Navajo code talkers were Marines. Number two, the Japanese eventually broke the Navajo code. Number three, the code talkers were told if you're being shot at and you have a message to send, put down your rifle and send the message. Got them? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode and by a simple process of elimination, you'll be able to find out which one is the lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to connect with Judith to chat about the historical accuracy of wind talkers. Let's start the same way the movie does, by introducing us to one of the main characters, a Navajo tribesman by the name of Ben Yazi, and in the movie, he's played by Adam Beach. As we all know, it's common for movies to change the names of real people or make a composite character who's based on multiple real people. Or, of course, sometimes they just make characters up altogether. So where does the character of Private Ben Yazi fall? Was he a real person? No, he was not a real person. It's really impossible for me to know whether he was a composite of several people. He could have been. He had kind of that cute Navajo sense of humor. They have uh, tend to have a very self-deprecating sense of humor. And I loved when he got on the bus and he was so surprised to see his friend played by Roger Willie. And Roger Willie said to him, oh, I didn't want them to think you were the best we had. That was very typical Navajo humor. So they tried to make him seem Navajo, but um, he was not a real person. And I've never seen Yazzie spelled that way. Yazzie is a rather common Navajo last name, but it's spelled Y-A-Z-Z-I-E. And there were a couple of different code talkers with the last name, the surname Yazzie. But I certainly don't think they were Ben Yazzie. But I don't think he was meant, I think he was meant to be a fictional character resembling a real code talker. Okay, well, what about on the flip side of that? Because Nicolas Cage's character, Sergeant Joe Enders, do you know if he was a real character or not? He was totally made up. That usually gives a pretty good indication of how uh, historically accurate a movie is when both the main characters are made up. (laughs) Yeah. Now, he could have been based on someone that someone who wrote the movie knew, but I couldn't find him anywhere in history. Speaking of the historical side, the movie doesn't give us a lot of historical context around why the Navajo language was used 
by Code Talkers. The only explanation that I remember getting was uh, Jason Isaac's character, Major Millets. He's explaining to then Corporal Joe Enders that the Marine Corps developed a new code based on the Navajo language. And there's another line of dialogue later on in the movie that mentions something to the effect of how the code talker can do in two and a half minutes what it used to take hours to do. So can you give us a little more historical context around this, why the military used the Navajo language? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Really, what had happened is the Japanese were literally kicking our butts in the Pacific. And we were attempting to hop from island to island, conquering islands between Australia and Japan until we got close enough to Japan to actually attack from our island base close to Japan. But our communications were so terrible because the Japanese were able to intercept them, and then they deciphered everything. And it was largely a marine operation in the Pacific, although there were army operations as well. The Code Talkers were all Marines, by the way, the Navajo Code Talkers. But the Marines said, we we can't do this. They'd set up a rendezvous, and the Japanese would get to the rendezvous before they would. I mean, it was really awful. And there was a young man named Philip Johnston who grew up on the Navajo reservation when he was a child because his parents were both missionaries there. And he heard of this issue and he went to the Marines and he said, you know, Navajo is almost an impossible language. And it would be really a great language to use in a code because it's not written. You can't buy a book about Navajo. Hardly anyone can speak it who didn't grow up on the reservation. He grew up on there for quite a few years, but never could speak it well. And the Marines listened to him and gave it a a test. It's not written down at all, so it is completely just a spoken language passed on from generation to generation? It was back then. Now Navajo is written with a very complex alphabet, a tremendously complex set of verbs. I mean, if if you're speaking Navajo and the verb for pouring water out of a pail is different from the verb for pouring rocks out of a bag or pouring dirt out of (laughs) some container. I mean, everything is so specific. Everything is to everything else. It's extremely complex. Wow. Well, in the movie, they the way, at least the way I understood it, when they were kind of explaining how this works, not only was it the the Navajo language itself, but that they swapped words. Like, I think they used the word tortoise for a tank and the word uh, many big guns for artillery. Did they also do that, or was it pretty much just using the language? No, they did not just use the language, but they did do the kind of word substitution. And they did that because eventually there were over 400 code talkers and over 700 words in the language, plus an alphabet, and they wanted people to be able to memorize And they especially had to be able to memorize things that made sense because they knew that they'd be in the thick of battle having to transmit messages. And 
if the words were obscure in some way, it just would be much too difficult to memorize and be consistent and not make any mistakes. And that was Chester, the man whose memoir I wrote. That was his biggest fear, that he would make a mistake that would somehow cause the death of one of his fellow Marines. Oh, man. Yeah, I could only imagine the immense pressure for something like that. Yeah, there was a lot of pressure on those guys. Well, you mentioned the battlefield, and that leads into my next question, because the main or primary plot lines in the movie is we have Sergeant Enders, who, you know, fictional, and and Private Yazzie. And Enders is tasked with essentially protecting Yazi on the battlefield. Did they do this sort of team up where they had a code talker teaming up with another Marine to protect them on the battlefield? Not in the way they depicted it in the movie. Really, what they should have shown is the code talkers worked in groups of four. There were always two code talkers together one who carried the radio, and the other one was attached to him by the umbilical cord of the microphone and headset, because we didn't have Bluetooth back then. So the radio was cranked. It was a TBX radio. One guy would crank and the other guy would transmit. So the movie really lost the whole feel of that, because they always had enders with Yazzie rather than Yazzie with another code talker. Now, there were supposedly, although the Marines would neither confirm nor deny this, there were supposedly bodyguards who were watching the code talkers at all times and who were buddies with the code talkers and would follow them even if they had to go take a leak. (laughs) And Chester said, I just thought it was my buddy looking out for me. We all had each other's back. But he said, later on, we learned that, yeah, it probably was a case where the code talker would have been shot if it looked as though the Japanese were going to capture him. And that angered a lot of the code talkers. And I asked Chester how he felt about that. And he said, you know, he was a very thoughtful man. He said, you know, I've thought about it. And I think I would much rather have been shot by one of my buddy Marines than tortured to death by the Japanese. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And they do talk about that very briefly in the movie, that idea of of shooting to save the code. Yes. Yes. And he knew the code was, well, once they started using it, He knew the code was so unique and so successful, it really became the only unbroken spoken code in modern warfare. So they could not let it get into the hands of the Japanese. The weather is getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, 
in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com/tos for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earnin. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. There was a part in the movie I remember where the Japanese did capture a a Navajo, but he was not a code talker. And so he wasn't able to help them break that code. Do you know of anything like that where if they were able to capture the language, then they had this extra code on top of it, but would they be able to piece that together? Or was it that much that more complex on top of just the language? It was so complex on top of the language that they could not break it. Uh, But there was a man that I found in my research named Joe Kiyumiya, who was a Navajo, and he was captured by the Japanese. And they tortured him. They left him out in the cold until his feet froze to the ground. They did all kinds of horrible things to him, trying to get him to break the code. Somehow they decided it was Navajo. I, no one knows how they decided upon that. But Joe Kiyumiya just said, this is total gibberish. It makes no sense at all. No sense. That little bit there, I mean, that that part of it was fascinating to me because it throws on the, the complexity of the language, but then the complexity on top of it. And that what you were saying earlier about you're in, in the middle of a battlefield and you're trying to remember the code for these very precise things of, you know, where's the artillery going to drop? You know, all these different... I I couldn't imagine. I couldn't either. I mean, they were literally told, if you have a message to send and you're being shot at, you leave your rifle slung over your shoulder and you send that message. And then they'd have to run because the Japanese could triangulate their position. Even though they couldn't tell what they were saying, they could hear the transmission. And so oftentimes they'd They'd transmit and run, and within minutes, artillery would hit the exact spot where they'd been. So if there was a lot, a lot of pressure. And if those guys hadn't grown up going to enforced boarding school, I don't know how they would have withstood the pressure. But from the time they were little kids, they were under a lot of pressure because boarding school was horrendous. And I think that really prepared them in some ways to be code talkers. The movie doesn't make any sort of mention of boarding school. What are you referring to there? Well, the movie doesn't show any Navajo culture whatsoever, except for a little ceremony that would never have been performed in the midst of battle on an island where Roger Willie's character is blessing Adam Beach's character. And that would not have happened. That happens at home on safe soil. But 
the boarding school was something that the Navajo kids and all indigenous children were forced to attend. And if their parents didn't allow them to attend, the police would come and get them and bring the, the kids to school. And the boarding school was supposed to erase the Navajo culture and make these kids part of the larger culture. Luckily for us in World War II, it didn't work, but the kids were kicked or hit or punched or had their teeth brushed with that brown felsnaphtha lye soap if they were caught speaking Navajo at boarding school. So Chester said he could always feel that kind of frozen lump of ice in his gut the whole time he was in boarding school, and he knew he better not make a mistake, and he knew that the teachers were always watching for a mistake. And if you made one, you'd get hit. So he said, none of us spoke English when we arrived there, but we had to learn it. And we learned it fast and we learned it under pressure. So I thought about that a lot and thought, you know, that gave them a real facility for being able to think under pressure. Yeah, un- unfortunate. It sounds. I mean, it sounds like it was a, a horrible situation to be forced to learn in that way. But it sounds like that inadvertently uh, prepared them for thinking under pressure and, and being able to translate these messages. Yeah, there were quite a few other things in their culture that prepared them. I mean, the memorization. Since Navajo wasn't written, they were used to memorizing, and there are all kinds of things that contributed. But boarding schools certainly played a part. Wow. Well, heading back to the movie, that leads into something that I wanted to ask about. And we see some pretty blatant racism from some of the white soldiers in the movie. And there's an an example where Christian Slater's character is... I think he was he was teamed up with Charlie Whitehorse and they're playing poker around the table and Christian Slater's character asks, asks Charlie if he wants to come sit and play. And then Noah Emmerich's character, Chick, is like, are you serious? Like, you know, this poker game has to be segregated. And there are other examples of, of racism there. But did the Code Talkers face racism during the war? You know, you would think that they would have, and especially Chester's group, since they were the original 29 Code Talkers. And I asked him about that, and he said, you know, we proved in basic training that we were damn good Marines. I mean, all the newspapers were writing about them. They could hardly believe their proficiency on the rifle range and in all of the Marine Corps training. They called them Superman. And um, he said, Marines only care if you're a good Marine. And he said, We had their backs. They had our backs. I never experienced any kind of prejudice. He did say that they referred to them as chief. They'd call them, hey, chief, come on over here. And he said, but I don't believe that that was any kind of a derogatory, that it was said with derogatory intent. He said they, you know, being a chief is a good thing. (laughs) But, uh. Nowadays, we consider it prejudice to use that, but he said it was it was used like a term of respect. And he said when we had missions that we were sent out on, if they needed a bunch of men for a mission at night or something, he said, 
the Marine officers always wanted the Navajos to be part of their mission. He said they trusted us. And he said, with good reason, we were damn good Marines. That part of it, honestly, just from what you were saying earlier with the, the boarding schools and the leading to that kind of how the movie portrayed things. Honestly, I expected a, a completely different answer. Like I expected there to be some inherent racism. I mean, that's that's unfortunate, but, you know, it's just something I expected. So I'm, I'm glad <laughs> that uh, that there wasn't. I'm glad, too, because at least the guys over there felt as though they were a team, all of them. Whether they were Navajo or white or Hispanic, they were a team. And Chester, you know, cared about his fellow Marines. He really did. And of course, this is only one man's experience, and he was quite an incredible man. And perhaps others had a different experience. Yeah, that's that's true. That's true. Well, heading back to the movie, something else that movies do a lot of time is they change up the timeline. So I'm curious how the timeline here stacks up to history. Earlier in, in the movie, they mentioned that they, you know this is a new code. And just before that in the movie, we saw a date being 1943. And then later from that, we find you know the, the battle, the big battle in the movie is the Battle of Saipan, uh, which we know from history began in June of 1944. So would it be safe to assume that the U.S. didn't start using Navajo code talkers until later in the war, like 43 or 44? No. Um, actually, it was a new code to them, I'm sure, because the old shackle code had been around for a long time. But Chester was, and his, the other 28 men who designed the code with him were recruited and sworn in as Marines on May 4th of 1942 just a couple of months after Pearl Harbor was bombed. And they designed the code after they all passed basic training. They weren't allowed to know what the secret mission they'd volunteered for was until they'd all passed basic training. And then they designed the code. And in September of 1942, they were sent into battle. Chester went to Guadalcanal. And the, uh, some of the others went to other places. But I think the timeline's fairly accurate. And I think it was a new code as far as any of the other Marines were concerned. But they did start using code talkers right away after the code was designed in 1942. Okay, now that brings up an interesting point because... You mentioned that Chester is one of the ones that helped design the code. And in the movie, all we pretty much see is they're, they're being taught the code that already exists. So were there different rounds of, of code talkers that were then, if you know, Chester was part of the original, then they trained others that came in? Exactly. You got it right on. It was so successful, so quick, so unbreakable that the Marines immediately wanted more code talkers. So they recruited actively young Navajo men, and there were about 400 additional men trained as code talkers, and they were trained by existing code talkers. Two men always stayed in San Diego to train the new upcoming code talkers. I'm going to just assume then and give give the movie a little bit of a benefit of a doubt here saying that since this is happening later in the, the movie's timeline, maybe they're just a, a, an alternate <laughs> level of it. Yeah, no, that's true, because 
they didn't show the design of the code, which was fascinating. But it was already in use by the time we get to Wind Talkers, the movie. So they were being trained in San Diego and then sent out. Yeah, but that left it in question. That left it as though maybe some white guy <laughs> designed the code or maybe the Marines designed the code. And that was not the case. That's I mean, that's that's exactly as I was watching the movie when uh, Ben is in there in the training room and they, you know, they arrive and they're they're being trained on this code. What I assumed was this is a, a code that the Marines came up with as, you know, maybe based on the Navajo language, but they came up with this and they're teaching it to other Navajo to be able to yeah. pass it on. You know, that, no, none of the Marines could make heads or tails of it. They couldn't. <laughs> There's no way any of the non-Navajo Marines could have taught that code. I mean, I guess that, that's when you know you have a good code, when nobody else understands it, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That leads into something else I'm curious about, because the way that we see things in the movie, we get a, kind of an idea for how the code talkers worked. And you mentioned this a little bit earlier, you know, on the on the battlefield in groups of four. But then we also see... In particular, there's a scene where they're talking to someone, I believe, on the USS California to bombard coordinates on the island. And we see cutting between Ben and Charlie on the island and then cutting to someone else. I don't remember if we get his name or not, but another Navajo code talker on the ship. And meanwhile, the court, and then it does cut to the Japanese and they're kind of intercepting. They're like, are they underwater? Is this even English? <laughs> like they don't know what's going on. But how well did the movie do showing how they communicated? Did there have to be uh, another code talker? For what I'm assuming there, as you mentioned, they were all Marines, which, of course, you know, division of the Navy. But on all the ships, like, did each ship have to have a code talker? To, like, how, how did they communicate back and forth? They would have four code talkers on the land, four code talkers on the ship, one of the ships at least, that could bombard the land. And they'd communicate back and forth about what needed to be done. And then there were usually two more code talkers who kind of stood in wherever they were needed. And oftentimes these guys would be transmitting messages for 36 hours at a time. No sleep, no food. I don't know how the heck they did it. And when the Marine Division went to R&R in um, Australia, the code talkers weren't allowed to go because they couldn't replace them yet, the original guys. So it was it was rough. It was a rough duty. Wow. wow. Were there any situ situations then where they were forced to ad adapt in some way? I'm thinking of, you know, if, if you have uh, four on land and four on the ships, particularly on land, you're in the middle of the battle. That's almost a bottleneck where, you know, what happens if, if they're incapacitated or, or killed or whatever that might be? Did then they have to revert to not using the code then? I would imagine that's what they'd have to revert to. But the four were not all together. It was two and two. And then um, the, there were the two extras that were ready to jump in if they were needed. Okay, okay. I, I was imagining all four together, and I was like, that seems like an, an easy target that, you know, the Japanese may not know where they are, but... Yeah, they weren't all together. Okay, because what you were saying earlier about the Japanese being able to tell that they might not say, know what they're saying, but they know that there's somebody over here start bombarding right away. It seems like, well, if they're all four together, <laughs> that's going to be an issue. Yeah, by triangulating. 
Yeah, yeah, that'd be bad. Oh, four birds with one stone. No, bad. In the movie, we do see that Sergeant Enders gets a, a silver star for something that he and Private Yazzie did together during the battle. And as I was watching this, again, another assumption that I got while I was watching that Ben Yazzie did not get the medal because he wasn't white. Going back to the racism there that we saw in the movie, the commanding officer that gives it to Sergeant Enders, he, great job. And Enders turns, says, you know, Yazzie did it too. And the commanding officer is just like, keep it up. Good work. You know, that just kind of passes him over. (laughs) Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Very few of the Code Talkers got any kind of commendation until 2001 when they got the Congressional Gold Medal for the original Code Talkers. And the reason the Marines gave was because Code Talking was a new category in the Marines, and they did everything by the book, and there were no rules in the book for how a code talker could earn himself a commendation. The few that did get commended were commended for other duties that they were assigned to, maybe even on the fly, that weren't code talking duties, but were regular Marine tasks. And so the Marines got around the idea of prejudice that way. And I can't speak to the idea of prejudice the way the movie showed it, because Chester didn't actually see that. But it does seem to me that the Code Talkers were so important to the war effort, they really could have done something to try to get them some sort of recognition. Earlier on, in 2001, when the original guys got the Congressional Gold Medal, only five of them were still alive. Yeah, that's a long time after the war. Yeah, yeah, 56 years later. Wow. Was it was the code talking the existence of it, but a top secret thing? Like maybe that would be one reason why they didn't receive commendation or maybe they weren't allowed to talk about it or anything like that. Just thinking of code in general tends to be more top secret. Uh-huh. It was top secret. And when the Navajo code talkers left the Marines after the end of the war, they were told they couldn't talk to anyone about it. Not their families, not their, you know, friends, nobody. And uh, it wasn't relieved from secrecy until 1968. So that was 23 years. But if they had recognized them then, in 1968, they would have had a considerably larger amount still alive to receive the honor. And there are still club talkers that history says their families never knew they were code talkers because they died. And the family never found out that they were Navajo code talkers. They died before they were allowed to talk about it. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a great point about how in the 60s would have been a perfect time to when you come out that, you know, this is a thing that happened during the war. All right. This is a great time to give commendations to the people involved in that. Yeah. And at that point, we were using computer generated codes for communication, they weren't going to use a spoken code again. And that's why they released it from secrecy. Chester had me put the whole code in the back of his memoir with his corrections, because he said the Navy got a few things wrong when they released it. (laughs) He was 
over ninety then. And we went through it word by word by word. It was fascinating and it was incredible to me to see his memory, his steel trap memory. Yeah, to be able to to recount it so many years after the fact. I'm trying to remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) I know. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Uh, That's impressive. Wow. Wow. That just speaks to the the type of person that he was. That's that's impressive. Yeah, he was really an incredible man. Knowing him literally changed my life. So how well do you think the movie did portraying the Navajo culture? The little bit of culture it portrayed, I found a couple exceptions to. For one thing, when one of the Navajo men was hit by artillery, he wouldn't yell or scream the way that Ben Yazi did when he was hit in the movie. I asked Chester about that, and I said, well, why not? And he said, we didn't draw attention to ourselves. If we needed a medic, someone else would call a medic for us. We'd just lie there quiet. That's the exact opposite of what I would do. (laughs) Say that again. (laughs) Yeah, me too. (laughs) Heading back to the movie, we see some interesting character arcs in... The people who are fighting alongside the the code talkers. Uh, we've talked earlier, you know, about about Enders and Sergeant Henderson. They start to befriend the code talkers that they are assigned to protect. You know, initially they were both against it, and then you know, towards the end, we see you know Sergeant Henderson just playing their harmonica alongside Private Whitehorse. You know, he's playing on his flute, playing harmonica. They're they're playing together. Can you give us some insight into how the military's treatment of the code talkers changed from over the course of the war from it sounds like you know from the early 40s when they when they started to towards the end of the war? Well, I think the most important thing is the Marines realized how valuable they were. And out of the 420 code talkers that eventually fought in the war, only 13 were killed. And they were always with the front lines. So they were always in positions of danger. So it shows you how carefully they were protected. And the Marines were told over and over, these guys are making the difference for us. Something happens to these guys, you're in trouble, (laughs) as well as we're in trouble. (laughs) And so they were, the co-talkers were well-respected. And I think they'd earned it. I mean, they certainly had earned it. But it was a good thing that the Marines recognized how crucial they were to the war effort. Now, you mentioned that they were only in the Marines, but then, you know, if the Marines were talking about how crucial they were, do you know if any other branches of the military wanted to use them as as code talkers for their operations? Yeah, um, the last island that Chester fought on was called Engauer, and that was an island that was being attacked by the army. They were trying to conquer that island, and they needed code talkers. And Chester and a couple others went over just for a few days to help them with a specific battle that they needed them for. And while they were there, one of the soldiers captured them and held a forty-five to Chester's head and said, 
you are jam jap in a Marine uniform. You're a spy and I'm going to shoot you right here. And Chester convinced him to go talk to his communications officer. And of course, the communications officer nearly fainted on the spot and said, wait, no, no, no. (laughs) But it was interesting because um, it had been suggested to the Army early on that they use Navajo code talkers too. And the letter I found in my research from the Army responding to the suggestions basically said, what the heck can a bunch of stupid Navajo kids do that an Army man can't do? And it was very much an irony that they ended up needing to borrow the the code talkers. Yeah. (laughs) When you were talking about that, the the guy holding the gun to Chester, the the first thing comes to mind is there's a scene in the movie where, granted, you know, they're all Marines, but there's a scene where uh, I don't remember which character it was, but he he tells Ben Yazi that he looks like a, a Japanese soldier, like he stole the uniform. and yeah. It was the big blonde guy who was the kind of pain in the neck through the whole movie. I forgot its name, but yeah. Yeah, the same guy that, that you know, didn't want him to come to the poker table. Yeah, he was kind of the, the, the racist one throughout the entire movie. But yeah, that, that story kind of sounds like that. I wonder if maybe they, they pulled some in, inspiration from that, maybe other branches of the military and, and how they reacted to them. Sounds like there may have been more prejudice involved than the Marines. I think there might have been. And actually, historically, many of our Native American tribes are related to Asians who came across the land bridge from Asia to Alaska. So there is a relationship there. But the guy in the movie was doing it because he was nasty. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm curious, because you mentioned some, you know, other Native Americans and what about the Navajo language made that work for code talking and not some of the other languages? Was it primarily because it wasn't written down and they knew that if it's not written down, then the Japanese are not going to know what, what it is? That was a big deciding factor. And another large deciding factor was at the time, there were about 250,000 Navajos on the reservation. And many of them joined the military. So there were plenty of young Navajo men who could be used as code talkers. Now, I think some of the other native languages were just as complex and could have been used. And actually, 33 tribes have been recognized by Congress as having provided code talkers. But it was a different kind of um, situation. It was mainly in Europe, and it was primarily a communications officer overhearing a couple Native Americans talking to each other and then saying, hey, could you send a message in that language? And they do that for a while. But it really wasn't a code per se, the way the Navajo code was. Okay, it was just speaking the language, not necessarily a code on top of it, sounds like. Yes, exactly. Okay. One of the things, taking a step back from the movie and just looking at it overall, a big impression that I got was that the code talkers were only trained to be radio operators. Yeah, they were in the battleground, but it was really only because they needed to be there to transmit messages and such. And of course, I mentioned earlier, they have the Marine bodyguards assigned to them. And so 
the overall idea that I got watching this was that, for lack of a better term, the Code Talkers were seen more as just a, a supporting role to the rest of the fighting force. How well would you say that the movie did showing the roles that the Code Talkers played during the war? Well, I think they were misleading in that they didn't have them working with each other. But also the Code Talkers, when they went through basic, they got the highest marks on the rifle range. They were sharpshooters. Almost all of them were sharpshooters or better. And so it was difficult for them to be carrying a weapon, but to know that they couldn't use it if there was a message to be sent that that had to take priority. And um, the movie, I felt, didn't create the right atmosphere for the way things worked between the code talkers themselves, depending on each other, and also between the code talkers and the Marines, because they would occasionally get special assignments, the code talkers would, and they did them so well, the Marines sought after them to do anything else they could fit in besides being a code talker. So the the movie kind of implied they're just supposed to code talk, and that was their primary objective. But they were so good at everything else as well that they were sought after as raiders and just all kinds of things that the Marines might need them for. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's a great way of phrasing that because that's exactly what I was thinking when I was watching the movie. Is you're they're pretty much just there to be the code talkers and that's it. Like they're not allowed to do anything else. But it sounds like it was very, very different. It was very, very different. Yes, <laughs> they did a lot of other things. I mean, whenever the Marines could find time for them to do other things, there were times when they couldn't because the messages were crucial. The messages sent by the code talkers went so fast, and in the midst of battle, that was crucial. I mean, they couldn't use the shackle to tell the artillery where to shoot because four hours later, it was meaningless. Right, yeah. No, I mean, time is time is crucial in battle. I, I can only assume. I'm, I, I've not been in battle, but I would assume that that would be very important for sure. Yeah. If you were in charge of directing the movie, what's one key thing that you would have changed about it? Hmm. Certainly, I would show much less Nicolas Cage and much more Code Talker. Another thing in the movie that threw me off was the reaction to the food. Uh, I think that both Ben Yazi and Whitehorse took a look at the food and kind of looked askance at it. And uh, Chester had told me, oh, my gosh, the Marine food was so good. In basic training, he said no one ever left a morsel on their plates. Now, later on, when they got to the islands, they didn't always have the best supplies. But he said they ate everything they could get their hands on anyway. But I think what I would have shown is at the end of the movie, I would show how our attitude as a nation had changed towards the code talkers. Because when Chester died, and he was the last of the 29 original code talkers, his funeral was incredible. I mean, the Marines flew officers out from Quantico, Virginia, to Albuquerque to attend the funeral. 
the governor of New Mexico had all the flags flown at half-staff. Current and past Navajo Nation presidents came to the funeral. There were something like five or 6,000 motorcycle honor guards taking part. I mean, it blew me away. And the uh, funeral was in Albuquerque, but Chester was buried in the National Cemetery in Santa Fe. And the police closed the 55 miles of freeway between Albuquerque and Santa Fe for the funeral cortege. So there were cars pulled over to the side, people saluting from the side of the road. There were people on the overpasses, fire trucks, crews waving. And that's something I would have loved to see in a movie. Now, of course, all of that hadn't happened yet when Wind Talkers was made. But the fact that we came to so appreciate our code talkers, once we understood the history, is huge. And so if I were making a movie now, that would definitely be part of it. That would be an important part of it to show we learned as a nation. Yeah, no, it sounds like that would be a very, a great way to honor his memory. You know, it was very different than the implication that I got watching the movie. Very different from the feeling I got, too. Even the Red Sox sent him flowers to thank him because they believed he broke the curse of the Bambino when they finally won a World Series again. Okay, well, that's a that's another story. How does that tie? How does how does he tie into the Red Sox? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm getting into Chester, not the movie, but it's it is interesting. What the heck? He was in Boston speaking at Harvard, and the Red Sox got wind of that. And you know how superstitious baseball players are. (laughs) And they called up someone at Harvard and said, hey, this guy is here in town. Do you think we could get him to throw the game ball out and give us a blessing? So he got a police escort to Fenway Park. And he got there just in time to throw the game ball out. He threw a strike. And um, he gave the team a blessing. And they started to do better. And he went back home. And during the World Series itself, when they were down, they called him at home and said, Chester, you think you could give us another blessing? And he said, sure, I can. And he gave them another blessing. And after that, they won every game of the World Series and won the World Series for the first time since they traded Babe Ruth to the Yankees 86 years before. (laughs) So they loved him. They sent a big bouquet of white roses and the card just said, thank you. (laughs) That's so great. That's such a great story. I had no idea. (laughs) Isn't that great? (laughs) He had an amazing life. (laughs) Uh, Circling back to the movie real, real briefly, what is one of the biggest myths about the code talkers because of the movie? Uh, the biggest one is that the Marines actually, the Marine bodyguards actually killed code talkers. There was not a single instance where a Marine bodyguard killed a code talker. Now, perhaps they'd been told that they had to if capture looked imminent. But none of the code talkers ever got captured, and none of them were killed the way Nicolas Cage killed 
Roger Willie's character, White Horse. Yeah, with a, I think it was a grenade or something. Th- yeah. yeah, it was a grenade and it was pure Hollywood. That didn't happen. Well, it sounds you mentioned earlier there's uh, 420 and only 13 of them died. Yeah. And one of those 13 was killed by friendly fire because he made the mistake of standing up at his foxhole in the middle of the night to take a leak. And he got shot because they thought he was a Japanese. The Japanese used to invade at night. And it was just a terrible mistake. So 12 were actually killed in the line of duty. And the 13th was killed by friendly fire. And the poor corpsman who shot him never got over it, I'd been told. So Chester, I guess, knew of his family. And he said he just, he couldn't get over the fact that he'd killed a fellow Marine. Wow. Yeah, I can only imagine the the guilt that would, would come with that. Yeah. And yet they'd been told, do not stand up in the foxhole. If you have to go to the bathroom, use your helmet, which is not very appealing, but... <laughs> it's it's not, but it's also, it goes back to, I mean, I haven't experienced war, so I, I can't, I can only as- assume, but there's so many, like, I would make mistakes like that. I make I, I make stupid mistakes all the time at home without the, the pressures of battle and, and people shooting at me and all this stuff, and so I can only imagine, you know, I would... I would be somebody that would make make a mistake, like not remember things. And I would, too. I mean, I, I feel great sympathy for this guy because it was a natural instinct. You've got to go and you're outside already. <laughs> so why not? Yeah, you don't think about it. Well, thank you so much for coming on to chat about Wind Talkers. I, I know you had the honor of working with Chester. We talked throughout this about on his memoir called Code Talker, the first and only memoir by one of the original Code Talkers of World War II. Now, for someone listening to this, can you let them know a little bit more about your book and where they can get a copy as well as learn more about your work? Sure. The book is really a first-person account as told to me by Chester, I recorded his stories for three years. And then I arranged them all into kind of a book format and wrote them down and got them published. But the book came out from Penguin. It's been a bestseller ever since it came out in 2011. It still is. It's selling more now than it has for the last five years. It's incredible. It's really, many people have said to me, I was absolutely there in the foxhole with them. I And women as well as men have said that. So I feel like in writing this with Chester, we've imp- we have preserved such an important part of history. You can find the book at pretty much any bookstore and, of course, Amazon and um, many museums carry it. It's pretty much anywhere that any other mainstream book would be. It's been a life-changing experience working with Chester and learning about the Navajo culture and the Code Talkers. And I feel so blessed that I've been able to contribute some small amount towards preserving that incredible history. I'll make sure to add a, add a link to that in the show notes for this. Thank you so much for sharing some of that information with us here today. Of course, Dan. I've enjoyed it. I love talking about those guys. They were amazing, those co-talkers. Cool 
This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. I'd like to thank Judith Avila once again for her time and expertise in helping us separate fact from fiction in the movie Wind Talkers. As soon as you're done listening to this, go grab a copy of Judith's book called Code Talker, the first and only memoir by one of the original Navajo Code Talkers of World War II. Trust me, that'll give you a much more accurate look at the Code Talkers during World War II than the movie ever will. And of course, if you're driving or unable to head there right now, then I'll make sure to add a link to Judith's book in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the show's home on the web, based on a true story podcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. And as a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, all the Navajo code talkers were Marines. Number two, the Japanese eventually broke the Navajo code. Number three, the code talkers were told if you're being shot at and you have a message to send, put down your rifle and send the message. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's count it down and start with number three. The code talkers were told if you're being shot at and you have a message to send, put down your rifle and send the message. That is true. Judith explained that even though almost all the Navajo code talkers were excellent marksmen, they were good shots, they were told that the messages took priority. On top of that, she mentioned times where they were transmitting messages for over 30 hours straight, and they didn't get the same sort of R&R that other soldiers did because they were too important to the mission. Communication must continue, which means the code talkers must as well. Next is number two. The Japanese eventually broke the Navajo code. That is... Well, that's the lie. As Judith explained, because of the complexity of the Navajo language and the code that the original code talkers developed on top of that language, it ended up being the only unbroken spoken code in modern warfare. That means number three is also true. All the Navajo code talkers were Marines. Even though Judith recounted the story of how Chester and some code talkers were asked to work for the army at one point, all the code talkers were Marines. That just about wraps up our time together today. Before we go, the last thing I like to do on each episode is to share how much time and effort went into creating this episode. I know that is not something that most podcasts do, and that's exactly why I'm sharing this information. If there's one thing that's surprising to most people who are new to podcasting or have never created a podcast before, it's just how much time goes into creating them. So I figure maybe if you find out more about how much time and money goes into creating a podcast like mine, maybe you'll start to appreciate all those podcasts that you listen to for free just a little bit more. With that said, today's episode took a total of 27 hours to create and cost $38.10 in out-of-pocket expenses. And as I always do, I want to make it clear that time and cost is only my time for this one episode. In other words, that 27 hours does not include the countless hours of my guest time researching the subject matter that we talked about. It also doesn't include the time that it takes for me to do podcast-related things that are not a part of creating this one episode. For example, the time it takes to maintain the Based on a True Story website, social media, email, and all those other little things outside creating a podcast episode that are required to make a podcast. 
Similarly, on the expenses side, that $38.10 is just for things specifically for this one episode, which is mostly research material. It does not include all the podcast-related expenses that go beyond making a single episode. For example, the cost of the microphone that I'm talking into right now, the cables that hook up to the microphone, the audio interface, the computer, the software, all the podcast and website hosting costs, and on and on. All those things take time to set up and maintain and cost money that goes beyond things associated with this one episode. But they're all things that are required because if I didn't do those things, then there wouldn't be any episodes of Based on a True Story at all. In a nutshell, this podcast may be free to listen to, but it is not free to create. And that is why I am so thankful for the wonderful people who are helping to support this show financially so we can keep it going. So if you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll consider helping support the next episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And as a bonus, you'll get access to hours of exclusive content on the producer's feed. Right now, there are 53 mini-sodes there covering a different fictional movie each time and the way that they use real history or events to make them seem a little more realistic. For example, over the past few weeks, we went through all of the Indiana Jones movies, wrapping up the franchise last week with Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. In that mini-sode, we learned about some of the real crystal skulls and the conspiracies that the movie used to help sell the realism of what is otherwise a very fictional story. There are hours and hours of bonus content available immediately and plenty more planned and in the works, all just as a way of saying thank you for helping me keep the lights on here at Based on a True Story. Once again, you can find out how to support the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And in the meantime, if you'd like to add to today's story, hop onto the Based on a True Story Facebook group. Or you can reach out to me directly on Twitter where I'm at Dan Lefeb, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. And if social media isn't your thing, you can shoot me a good old-fashioned email at dan at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.